according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the book of Hebrews. Once again, the book of Hebrews and chapter 5. We were thinking that chapter 4 was going to last forever, but we arrived at chapter 5, so here we are. And uh, got a good start on it a week ago, and uh, or even a couple of weeks now, and we're ready to get maybe our third shot at it as we deal with our high priest. The fact that we have such a great high priest is just a thrill, that we have a Savior who did what he did at first advent, but now he has passed through the heavens, he's seated at the Father's right hand. He is the apostle and the high priest of our confession. And while we have every amount of rejoicing and thankfulness for what he did, and don't get me wrong, we're, we're thrilled to be saved, and that past completed act is, is, is eternally powerful. With this chapter and what the book of Hebrews is stressing is the ongoing ministry, what he's doing now, seated at the Father's right hand. We have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so we need to be engaged. We need to be on board in our own priesthood. We need to be operating with him the apostle and high priest of our confession. And so this is what the book of Hebrews is equipping us to do. Verse 1 says, Every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And this is true for earthly high priests. This is also true for our Savior. Even though he was sinless, the testing that he was assigned, the suffering that the Father put him through, the weakness that he experienced is so that he can identify with each one of us eternally in, uh, in our Christian walk. Because of it, verse 3 says, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. And this is what we have as relates to our Savior, of course. He was without sin. He did not need to offer on his own behalf in order to be qualified to offer on our behalf. And this is uh, a huge difference and something we want to make sure that we're clear on before before we proceed. All right? So this is where we are. Let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are humble under the authority of truth. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we are here once again this morning, thankful for your grace and truth, thankful for this time together. And Father, uh, studying the very uh, thing that we're doing right now, we're praying to you. We're praying to you, Father, because we have a great high priest, because we are in his name. We have his righteousness imputed to our account. Even in this opening prayer, we're exhibiting the very thing that we're studying in the book of Hebrews, the priestly access that we have before you. And I thank you, Father, that not one of us can stand before you based on what we've earned or deserved. Not one of us can stand before you in our own righteousness. But, Father, I thank you that your Son, uh, he who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So, Father, in all these things we rejoice, in all these things we acknowledge you, and we call upon your faithfulness to lead our study today, to open our eyes to these verses Help us to understand them, to appreciate them, and to live them out. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.
All right, and so we have uh, the offering of gifts and sacrifices, and this is what we have as we center on it here. And so I'm going to real quickly just bring us along what we dealt with in verse 1 and verse 2. We're ready for verse 3, except there is still a little bit of detail out of verse 2 that, uh, that I omitted last week uh, incorrectly. So let's, let's hit on it again. The, uh, the idiom in, in verse 1 is interesting that he's taken from man, anthropos, right? Apo, away from man, out from men, and then on behalf of men. The group that he's taken from is the group that he's ministering to. And that's true for a high priest. Every high priest is specifically taken from among men that he might represent God on behalf of men. Levitical high priests are specifically taken from among Jews, and they are specifically placed in charge of the God things on behalf of Jews. And that was true in the Old Testament. That was true of their priesthood. Most of us would have nothing to do with that priesthood. We're not Jewish, see. But the high priest taken from among Jews was then uh, assigned, placed in charge, appointed for the God things on behalf of Jews. Jesus Christ, however, is the second Adam, is taken from among all humanity in Adam. And that's a big difference. This is a priesthood that is a universal priesthood. This is a priesthood that if you are saved by grace through faith, then you're no longer dead in Adam. You're now alive in Christ. And being alive in Christ you now have a part in this priesthood. We all do. The, the believer priest of, of, uh, of the universal believer priesthood that we have today is, is extraordinary. There was nothing like it in the Old Testament. And this, uh, this becomes important. We'll have more to say on this in, up, in some upcoming chapters. The purpose is to uh, offer both gifts and sin sacrifices. The purpose clause for such an appointment is to offer both gifts and sin sacrifices. Understand, the gifts come first in order of statement in the verse, and I think in order of importance. That the idea of a sin sacrifice, we tend to elevate that because that's what he did on the cross. And yet the order here is gifts and sin sacrifices. And that was true for the Levitical priest. That was true for us. We think there's a lot of emphasis that's made on the sin offerings, the trespass offerings, the guilt offerings, the peace offerings. We've got all these sacrifices in the Old Testament. The one that we really should spend more attention on is the free will offerings, the votive offerings, the the I want to do this offerings, okay? Not the I have to do this offerings, but the I want to do this offerings. And they had the opportunity to bring those. Yes, they were under law. And they had a lot of have-tos in the Old Testament. But they also could do the want-tos. And uh, those votive offerings, those free will offerings, I think are significant. And they're significant clearly in the church age for you and me today. I mean, when it comes right down to it, we're, we're out of the sin offering business, are we not? Jesus Christ gave himself once and for all. It is done. It is finished. Tetelestai, it is finished. And so now we walk in the newness of life. We present ourselves as living and holy sacrifices. There's no more death. We walk in the newness of life, and so we are here to offer gifts. We are here to offer the free will sacrifices that we offer in the church age, and we can do so without reference to sin. Our sin is removed. We are walking in the newness of life in Christ. And so it is, uh, it is an interesting thing for us to consider the offerings that we bring, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name, uh, the sacrifice of praise. That's an offering. That's a free will offering. All right. And how do you praise God? Do you, do you sing? Do you write? Do you, do you, how do you, how do you praise? How do you worship? 
And these are all a part of our want-tos in our creative expressions. The ways that we find creatively to tell God how great He is. And that's our good pleasure to do. And so that's a purpose clause. And we're going to learn more about our sacrifices. Offering gifts to God is a grace expression. When you give a gift, what are you doing? A gift is a grace thing. And so we get to express grace. God expressed grace to us, did He not? We are, the, we are eternally the recipients of the grace of God, so we should be expressing the grace of God. And we express grace back to God when we praise Him, when we worship Him, when we, when we offer up our sweet-smelling savor sacrifices. So offering gifts to God, this is our grace expression. This is our reflection of God's grace to us. And the more we, we identify with that grace, the more we want to express that grace. Jesus said that. The, the, the one who's been forgiven much will love all the more. Remember? I mean, that woman was just wiping his feet with her hair and her tears. And, and uh, the Pharisee, meanwhile, was just so full of himself, he, he didn't have any perspective at all to love Jesus Christ the way that woman did in, uh, in that chapter. And so uh, we do the same thing in our, in our sacrifices. We are offering to God a gift. We are giving gifts to God. See, giving gifts to God. And if that bugs you, just think about it for a while. Just chew on it for a while. And ask me, we'll talk about it together. We'll, we'll explore it. Because you think, uh, and maybe, maybe we just have finite understanding of what it means to give a gift. Maybe because we're so finite in our humanity, when we give gifts to other people, it's just such a sad reflection. And you know, I, I want to give gifts to my wife. I want to give gifts to my children. I want to give gifts to people I love. And, and, and so we give gifts, but do we give gifts to God in a way that we understand biblically. I mean, what do you, is it hard to give a gift to somebody who has everything already? Is it hard to give a gift to somebody that doesn't need anything? Is that hard? Yeah, I mean, what do you give a guy that's got everything, you know? What do you give a guy that if he doesn't have it, he could buy it if he wanted to, and so he probably doesn't want it because he'd, he'd have it already if he really wanted it. So how do you give a guy a, you know, like that, how do you give him a gift? You know, yeah, Donald Trump's a billionaire, or Michael Dell, or whoever, pick your favorite billionaire, um, Bill Gates, whatever. What are you going to give him? I mean, seriously? And uh, whatever you can give him is pathetic, and you know, he could have afforded a thousand of them anyway, so what, what am I going to give him? Okay? And that's what we have to overcome. We are giving gifts to God the creator of heaven and earth, from whom is everything anyway. So we've received it all from him, but we want to freely give to him as expressions, as tokens, as, as I mean, as just think about it. You know, when I give flowers to Sharon, it's not because she needs them, okay? But it's a, it's a way to say, you know what? I love you, God. And so I want to sing this hymn. I want to offer this praise. I want to, I want to tell this person how great you are. I want to talk to this unbeliever about Christ. And that's a priestly sacrifice. We saw that in Romans 15 this morning. When you give the gospel, you're ministering a priestly sacrifice to the Lord. So it's a grace thing. We never want to uh, lose track of that. There are gifts and there are sin sacrifices. And we dealt with those. In verse 2, we talk about uh, dealing gently with the ignorant and the misguided. Do you like that verse? I love that verse. <laughs> I 
When I read ignorant and misguided, I take it personally. That's, uh, <laughs> that's just, uh, oh, I tell you, okay? And yet, beyond the humor of the terms, is a very serious theological reality. Because the things we do in ignorance can be excused if we offer, if we do things in ignorance. Paul said he was shown mercy because he, he was a persecutor of the church, he was a violent aggressor, and yet he was shown mercy because he operated ignorantly in unbelief. And yet even through all that, God still considered him faithful and put him into service, we're told. So yeah, Paul had a lot of reasons to be thankful. And uh, even though he'd committed some terrible things, he put Christians in jail and had you know, voted against them for their execution. He was responsible. He was there holding the robes when they stoned Stephen to death. Okay? And yet it says that he operated ignorantly in unbelief. And so uh, there is a, a, a thing to understand when it comes to dealing with the ignorant and the misguided. That's one thing. But the willfully defiant is something else. The willfully defiant is something else. And so don't lose track of this. I'm gonna, it's a little bit redundant from last week, but I, I want to pound this home because it's going to come up again and again and again. Chapter 6, chapter 10. Some of the warnings are dire warnings, but they're misunderstood when you don't take them in their Levitical or Numbers or Deuteronomy context. And so that's what we have here. You see, um, let me get past that. Let me get past that. Here we go. This is what we're talking about. The ignorant and the misguided. When you're looking at Numbers 15, the ignorant and the misguided, there's provision for them. The ignorant and the misguided have priestly provision, but the willfully defiant do not. All right? That is huge. The ignorant and the misguided, they have priestly provision, but the willfully defiant do not. So if you missed it last week, or even if you, if you were here, let's look at Numbers 15 again. And I just want to stress this, because this is the backdrop. This is what the recipients of Hebrews would have immediately understood. The priestly audience that's receiving this epistle would not have missed this connection. Numbers 15. And you'll notice, as you look through verses 22 through 29, again and again and again, you're going to notice the ignorant and the misguided. You're going to notice the unintentional sins. You're going to notice these things. So Numbers 15, 22, when you unwittingly fail and do not observe all these commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses. And think about it. Think about how we fall short, how we have sins of omission. We have just things that we don't think about and things that, that are done that way. So when you unwittingly fail and do not observe all the commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses, even all that the Lord has commanded you through Moses from the day when the Lord gave commandments to, and, and onward throughout your generations. Then it shall be, if it is done unintentionally, without the knowledge of the congregation, that all the congregation shall offer one bowl for a burnt offering as a soothing aroma to the Lord, with its grain offering and its drink offering, according to the ordinance, and one male goat for a sin offering. Then the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the sons of Israel, and they will be forgiven, for it was an error. And they have brought their offering and offering by fire to the Lord, their sin offering before the Lord for their error. So all the congregation of the sons of Israel will be forgiven with the alien who sojourns among them. 
for it happened to all the people through error. You notice this? Again and again and again. We have unintentional, we have error, we have uh, all these expressions. Verse 27, also if one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. And then uh, keep in mind this for the alien as well as the citizen. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the sons of Israel, and for the alien who sojourns among them. And so that's the provision. There is priestly provision for the ignorant and the misguided. But, and there's a great big but right there in verse 30, the person who does anything defiantly, you see that word? The person who does anything defiantly, whether he's a native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people. Well, where's the priestly service? Where's the intercession? Where's the offering? Where's the, there no longer remains an offering for sin. That person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken in his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. All right, so that's the backdrop. So whereas the ignorant and the misguided have priestly provision, the willfully defiant do not. And just glean this principle now and chew on this principle now because it comes forward into the New Testament, into the book of Hebrews, and we're going to have this again. And by the time we get to chapter 10, it gets expressed this way. Hebrews 10 now in verse 26. And uh, I can't wait for this chapter. I've said for years and years, I said Hebrews is my favorite book out of the 66 and chapter 10 is my favorite chapter out of the 13 chapters in the book of Hebrews. Because this is, this is really the, the, the essence of our priesthood here. We, have, we enter within the veil. We have this priesthood. And uh, verses 19 through 25 are just precious. But then comes the warning. Verse 26, if we go on sinning willfully, all right? That's like the defiantly we had there in Numbers 15. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Okay? There isn't. There wasn't then, there isn't now. But a terrifying expectation of judgment the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment? So it's it's phrased as a ratio. It's phrased as 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 a percentage. Comparison. They got what they got. What do you think we're going to get? More or less? Obviously more. How much more? How much more? Well, can you... What's the metric for infinity? (laughs) What's the metric for contrasting a shadow with a reality? Because the law is a shadow, but the substance belongs to Christ. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God 
and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. That's the language. That's the language. That's powerful. That is absolutely powerful. Okay? But it comes in the recognition of the priesthood of offering gifts and sin sacrifices. And remember, there is no more sacrifice for sin. So these things become vital for us when we understand these warnings. They're dire warnings. They're dire warnings that have nothing to do with throwing away eternal life and going to hell when you die. They're dire warnings that have everything to do with throwing away your present priesthood and not functioning within the veil that is the flesh of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Okay, Because this is our ongoing daily moment-by-moment blessing. And Christians are just throwing it away in their defiant sin. So we'll, uh, we'll deal with that. And then, thirdly, the last aspect here, to deal gently. To deal gently. I like gentleness. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness is a feature of our Savior. Gentleness is a, a positive biblical uh, mandate. He can deal gently. He can deal gently. We have a Savior who can deal gently. The high priests were designed to deal gently. Pastors are commanded to deal gently. Parents are commanded to deal gently. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Right? Or your sons to wrath. I think daughters are... No, I'm teasing. (laughs) Parents to children. Okay? Don't provoke them to wrath. Gentle dealings are the mark of wisdom. Gentle dealings are the mark of wisdom. And this is such a great tie-in because we were just here on Wednesday mornings in our Proverbs class. In our Proverbs class, we just crossed from chapter 14 into chapter 15. If you thought Hebrews 4 was forever, you should have been here for Proverbs 14. But we, we did. We passed out of Proverbs 14. We got into Proverbs 15. And uh, what does verse 1 say? A gentle answer turns away wrath. That's right. And so, um, but, in the, the, the flip side of that, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So a gentle answer turns away wrath. It deflects wrath. It doesn't stop it. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't negate it from happening. It still happens. Whoever it is that's throwing wrath at you, whoever it is that's speaking the ugly things towards you, it doesn't change them at all. But it deflects it. Okay? Because you're not expected to just stand there and take it. Right? It's not receive all the wrath and just absorb it deflect it turn it away okay be like uh you know bruce lee or some of those martial art guys in the movies that you know the the axe is being thrown and he just swats it away before it can before it can cut him okay i've been practicing those moves with ninja turtles okay and so just deflect the wrath deflect the wrath and when you knock it aside what happens it's gone it's not a boomerang it's not coming back you just deflected it it's gonna fly off somewhere else it's not going to hit you. And the gentle answer turns away wrath. Whereas the harsh word, the harsh word there in Proverbs 15 is the painful word. That's, uh, and that's what, and our carnality wants to do that, right? We want to inflict pain. We want, and we, we may not even mean it, but we know it's going to hurt them, so we say it. That's the harsh word. That's the painful word. Because what they, what they said hurt us, we want to hurt them. And so we learn how to hurt them. 
we learn how to hurt the other person. And, and what's tragic about it, of course, is the people that are best suited to hurt other people are the people closest to you. And Satan knows that. Your carnality knows that. The people closest to you can hurt you in ways that nobody else can. And so we don't want to reply with the painful words. We want to reply with the gentle words, the gentle answer that turns away wrath, that deflects wrath. And so gentle dealings, it's a mark of wisdom. And our Savior exhibited this. And it was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 40. It was prophesied. And this, this to me is is interesting. And there's a couple of different Proverbs we could go, or Psalms, Isaiah we could go to, prophecies, I'm trying to say. <laughs> you know, how about the fact that he came humbly riding on a colt? How extraordinary is that? He didn't come, you know, he wasn't William the Conqueror, he wasn't Jesus the Conqueror who came to just kill everybody and conquer and establish a kingdom. He was born of a virgin, he was born in a manger, he lived a humble life, he, he lived in, in difficulty, man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. And when he did enter his capital city, it was humbly riding on a colt. Okay? Gentle dealings are the mark of wisdom, mark of prophecy. In Isaiah 40 it says, Comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God. And this is, this is so cool. The way, the way Isaiah is patterned. You got, it's like the miniature Bible, right? 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books of the New Testament. 39 chapters of Isaiah, now we get to chapter 40. And what do we have? Comfort. Comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended. And we have this message of comfort. And when you get down here, you know, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Um, Let every valley be lifted up. And you got all these promises. And verse 6, a voice says, call out. And uh, there's good news. Now notice, verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Think about that gentleness. Think about that tenderness. And here's a, you know, a conqueror. Here's a savior. Here's the creator God of the universe. What, what could he do with his mighty hand and outstretched arm and wrath poured out? You know, His arms are capable of tremendous things. And yet, look what he's doing with this, with this baby lamb. Look what he's doing with this, with this ewe. Um, and so he, in his arms he gathers the lambs and he carries them in his uh, bosom. And that's a, that's a tenderness. That's a gentleness. That's not weakness. Okay? And Satan and this world message tries to, they've got these flawed definitions of masculinity, these flawed definitions of leadership, these flawed definitions of, of everything where you've got to be a, a dictator or a tyrant. You've got to, you know, that's, that's, cause if you're not, then you're a, a pushover and you're a milk toast and they're just going to walk all over you. And wait a minute. Let's, let's, let's stay biblical here. Cause the, uh, the creator God of the universe is holding these lambs gently. Right? And yeah, he's capable. He can kill the lamb if he wants to, but that's not his purpose. He's gently carrying this, this lamb. And that's, uh, that's significant. Fruit of the Spirit, of course, Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, gentleness. Right? There it is. 
goodness, meekness, faithfulness, self-control, against such there is no law. Uh, pastors need to be gentle. Second Timothy 2. And even when they are rebuking, rebuke, reproof, exhort with great patience and instruction, even in the reproof and in the rebuke, there is still a note of gentleness with it. Because the preacher isn't just haranguing the flock as if he himself isn't making application. That's Phariseeism. There's a gentleness involved in this. And while I'm at it, you understand in the, uh, we had that fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and then when you have the, uh, you cross from chapter 5 into chapter 6, and it says, uh, uh, to restore such a one. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. How? In a spirit of gentleness. Notice that? Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. This gentleness is a mark of wisdom. And so let's keep that in mind in our priesthood. We think priesthood is, is, uh, is prayer, right? Isn't in that priesthood? It's more than prayer, but let's start with that. But it's the gentleness. It's not just asking for stuff. The priesthood is not just gimme, 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 gimme. Father, I need, I need, I need, I need. Right? More health, more money, less problems. That's my prayer life. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm supposed to be offering him gifts. I'm supposed to be dealing gently with the ignorant and the misguided. I'm supposed to be ministering as a priest to my brothers and my sisters. There's, there's more to the priestly ministry than just gimme, gimme, gimme. Money, food, fewer problems. Okay? There's more than that. So, uh, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and this is specifically to pastors, but I think we all can make application related to this. It says, uh, well, let's see, on the screen it's 24 through 26, but I'm going to back up a little bit. Make sure you're in fellowship, first of all. Um, it says in verse 21, if you cleanse yourself, therefore if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. And this is the imagery that he's teaching here. So it says, cleanse yourself. Be in fellowship. Confess your sins. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Cleanse yourself. You know, every house has the precious vessels and every house has the chamber pot. Right? That's verse 20. In a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, also some to honor and some to dishonor. So you have the fine crystal, you have the fine punch bowl, you have the fine vessels that you use for holidays and special occasions and family gatherings and very special events, weddings and bar mitzvahs and whatever. You got all this stuff, but you don't use them every day. You don't use them seven days a week and you don't use them for... Uh, you don't pull it out of your wife's china cabinet so you can change your oil. That would be bad. Okay. And then the, the, you've got the, the urinal and you've got the chamber, chamber pot and you've got other things. Again, there's, there's, there's vessels for that. And so what do you want to be in God's house? 
holy to honor or to dishonor? And so while you're in carnality, you're just the chamber pot. But when you're in fellowship, if you cleanse yourself from these things, you're a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. God won't use you when you're carnal. But when you're in fellowship, he can use you and he will use you for everything he wants to do. So flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And not by yourself either. It says with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That's why you want to be in a local assembly. That's why you want to have brothers and sisters, positive peer pressure to work with, to pray with, to struggle with, to learn the word of God with but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. You know, you got a body of people, not everybody agrees. You know, <laughs> we're not a cult. We've got opinions. We've got people with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If, perhaps, God may, well, that sounds iffy. (laughs) If, perhaps, God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. But if you're not gentle with them, are you going to bring them back? If you're harsh with them, Are you tenderly carrying the lamb in your arms? What are you doing? Because they're being held captive right now. It says they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Far worse, of course, yes, they got bad doctrine. Yes, they're making poor choices. Yes, they are in opposition. But the bigger issue, of course, Satan's using them. They're tools in his hand. They're, they've been in darkness so long, they're, just, he, she, they're serving Him instead of serving the Lord. So it's, again, it's able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. It doesn't say with gentleness, telling them that what they're doing is okay. Or with gentleness. No, that's with hypocrisy, telling them what they're doing is okay. That's wrong. It's with gentleness, correcting. Saying, you know what? The Bible says that's a sin but with gentleness, okay? And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. James 3, gentleness. And I love James 3. you got a contrast there. It's like fruit of the Spirit. In, in Galatians 5, you got fruit of the Spirit. And what comes before that is the deeds of, of carnality, the deeds of the flesh. Here in James 3, we've got wisdom from the Spirit. And what's before that? the wisdom of the flesh, the wisdom of the world. And so we have the contrast there in in James 3. The wisdom from below, oh my, who wants this? If you have, verse 14 says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. Now you note it is called a wisdom. This wisdom, it is a wisdom, but it's not God's wisdom. God's wisdom is that which comes down from above. This wisdom is from below. It's earthly, it's natural, it's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. 
for a lot of us, that's the workplace, <laughs> right? Or that's the neighborhood, or that's family reunions, or whatever. I mean, that's, that's any setting where you've got people that are shaped by the cosmos instead of being shaped by the Word of God. If the cosmos is shaping their thinking, and I don't care if they're saved or not, they can be born again and go into heaven when they die, but if the Word of God is not shaping their thinking, Romans 12, if they're not being renewed in the spirit of their mind, then that born-again believer is just as worldly as any unbeliever you want to point to. Just as worldly. Okay? Because they're, they're pursuing this wisdom from below. And God says this wisdom is foolishness. This wisdom is earthly, natural, demonic. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, there's our term, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So these gentle dealings, these gentle dealings are the mark of wisdom. So in our priesthood, what are we doing? We're praying, yes we're praying, but we're also acquiring wisdom. We're acquiring wisdom, we're admonishing one another, we're dealing gently with one another. This is what we do in our priesthood. We, we enter within the veil, we function in our priesthood, and it's so much bigger than just gimme, gimme, gimme. It's so much bigger than, dear Heavenly Father, I need. And then whatever my list of I needs are, long or short or whatever, then I slap a Jesus name, amen at the end of it, and I'm good. That's my, that's my incantation. That's my magic spell. As long as I use the right words to start it, the right words to close it, I can ask for anything in between. And, and sadly, prayer, the priestly function of prayer is just asking for stuff and has nothing to do with giving God any gift of any kind. And we're supposed to be giving Him gifts. All right. Now verse 3. Hebrews 5, 3. So, um, because, so He can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided, since He Himself also is beset with weakness. The earthly high priests, of course, were sinners and they had all kinds of weaknesses. But even Jesus, without sin, still had weaknesses that he was assigned. He had suffering that he was imposed upon him. And then, ultimately on the cross then, he had weakness imputed to him. He had the sin imputed to him when he was on the cross. Beset with weaknesses. And because of it, the earthly high priest anyway, because of his weaknesses... He is obligated to offer for sins as for the people, so also for himself. So the earthly high priest was obligated. The earthly high priest had to start with himself, then he could offer on behalf of the people. He was obligated. Now Jesus, on the other hand, had no obligation to offer sacrifice for himself, he wasn't a sinner. He had no obligation to offer sin a sacrifice for other people. And yet he chose to. He wanted to. Because his father designed it. And he said, not my will but thine be done. And so he did what he wanted to do. Not under compulsion. Not grudgingly or under compulsion. Remember, 
God loves the cheerful giver. Jesus went to the cross because he wanted to go to the cross, not because he was obligated. I want to be clear on that. Levitical priests were also sinners in need of a Savior. So their first sacrifices were personal before they could minister on behalf of others. Their first sacrifices were personal before they could minister on behalf of others. And of course, this is an important difference with respect to Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf. He didn't need first to offer a sacrifice for himself. But they did. Every Levitical priest did. They were sinners in need of a Savior. And that, I mean, it may go without saying, but Hebrew sure seems to say it over and over and over again. And there's other aspects on that too. You know, I mean, this, anytime I talk to a Roman Catholic, for example, about this, it's, it's curious to me why they think Mary was sinless when she praises her Savior in the Magnificat that she sings. It's recorded for us in, in Luke chapter 2. So she says, my Savior. Why does she need a Savior if she's sinless in the, the whole doctrine of the, the Immaculate Conception? Okay? Anyway. Mary was in need of a Savior, and Jesus was her Savior. She saw Him on the cross. He was her Savior. She was not the co-redemptrix standing there and ministering as a priest while her son was on the cross. That is blasphemy from the pit of hell. Alright? She was a sinner. These priests are sinners. Aaron, the high priest, they're all sinners in need of a Savior. So their first sacrifices were personal before they could minister on behalf of others. And that's what we see here. As for the people, so also for himself. Hebrews 9, 7. Uh, Let's see, I'll read 6 and 7. When these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. So the outer tabernacle, you got the table of showbread, you got the candlestick, you got the uh, altar the, of incense, and they're constantly going in there. But into the second, that is the most holy place, the holy of holies, into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Notice? Unintentional, not willful, not defiant, unintentional. And so the Holy Spirit signifies this, that the way to the holy place is not yet disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. And uh, there's, we'll, we'll get into that when we get into this chapter. There's some neat things here that, that we've got to talk about. But I love the fact that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the veil of the replica was torn in two. Isn't that beautiful? He said, Tetelestai, it is finished. And on Sol- in Solomon's temple, in that earthly temple, with you know Herod's remodeling and expansions, but that earthly temple was simply a replica of the heavenly temple. That veil was rent in two. And he didn't go in there. He had no business going in there. There's a new and living way. There's a reality. There's you and me in the heavenly places in Christ. There's our Melchizedek priesthood for church-age saints. That's what the book of Hebrews is teaching us. What a thrill. And so, uh, but he's ministering first for himself and then for the people. And Leviticus deals with this. Leviticus 9, 
There's a lot of passages we can turn to for this, but I think Leviticus 9 is pretty straightforward. Maybe the simplest. Leviticus 9, 7. Moses then said to Aaron, Come near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering, that you may make atonement for yourself and for all the people. Then make the offering for the people, that you may make atonement for them, just as the Lord commanded. So Aaron came near to the altar, slaughtered the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. Aaron's sons presented the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood. Oh, this gets messy. I would not have been good in the Old Testament. I would have... No. And then, uh, so he does all this. He washes entrails, in verse 14, and the legs, offering them up in smoke with a burnt offering on the altar. Then verse 15, then he presented the people's offering took the goat of the sin offering, which was for the people, slaughtered it and offered it for sin like the first. Anyway, you can read through more of that if you like, but it starts with himself. It starts with himself and then the people. That order is important. That order is there for a reason. God doesn't do anything on accident. When he does everything in order, he does everything for a purpose. And so this does become an important difference with respect to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ had no sin of His own. He didn't have to first cleanse Himself. He was eternally pure. Hebrews 7.27 makes this point. It was fitting. Verse 26, Hebrews 7.26. Man. Let me back up even more. (laughs) Hebrews 7.23, the former priests, on the one hand, those old Levitical guys, many of which, by the way, were receiving this letter, the audience was former priests, but the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. So we had so many high priests, Aaron and Eliezer and all the rest. They existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save to the uttermost, to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Praise God. We have an eternal high priest. He has passed through the heavens. Let us hold fast our confession. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. When the Old Testament high priest came out, he didn't pass through the heavens. He didn't ascend. He wasn't seated at the Father's right hand. He came out. Tomorrow's another day. And then next year he'll do it all over again. Year after year after year, reminders of sin. But he came out exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Once and for all. Once and for all. This too is, again, not 
Catholic bashing or Orthodox bashing. The Orthodox Church does the same thing. When they conduct their Mass, you know what they're doing? They're sacrificing Jesus over and over and over again. They're converting the elements into the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. The Mass is a a new sacrifice again and again and again. What the Father says, He doesn't want to look at ever again. He doesn't want to remember ever again. He's cast that behind His back into the depths of of the sea. But he does not need to offer sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. So he doesn't need to do that anymore. What's he free to do now? All day, every day. Gifts, free will gifts, to offer up gifts. We are free to offer up gifts. Sin sacrifices removed once and for all. Once and for all, because he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. Man, I love that. Isn't that great? And so, what's our application to? Church-age ministers, likewise, must be on guard for themselves. Pastors, ministers, evangelists, believers. Are we sinless like our Savior, or are we sinners like the high priests? Yeah, we're sinners. Sinners saved by grace. We need to watch out for ourselves. If we're in fellowship... If we're cleansed, then we can operate in our high priest with our Savior. Church-age ministers, likewise, must be on guard for themselves, keeping ourselves undefiled so we can minister on behalf of others. And I outsmarted myself by hitting those verses a little early, but there they are. 2 Timothy 2, 21 and 22. We were, we were there not long ago. Acts twenty twenty eight, in Paul's farewell message to the church at Ephesus. Church-age ministers, likewise, must be on guard for themselves. Are you looking out for yourself, praying for yourself, praying for your ministry? Why not? How how do you think you're going to shepherd a flock if you're not shepherding yourself? And fellow elders need to be looking at fellow elders and uh, working together to look at the flock. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Notice that? For years and years, I misread that. I just read, be on guard for all the flock. But it says, for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in. Notice, and again, I would misread this. It doesn't say savage wolves will come in and eat the flock. It says savage men, wolves will come in among you. They're going to be infiltrating the elders. They're going to be infiltrating the overseers. These, uh, they're not wolves in sheep clothing. They're wolves in uh, shepherd clothing. Coming among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. The main rebuke here is against the elders. It is against the overseers. And this is where Paul was ministering for three years. He knows these men well. This is, these are the crowd that he said, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will generally be concerned for your welfare. And he says, Timothy is the only one I can send to Philippi right now because they're all selfish. This is the same group that he's warning here in, in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. So be on guard for yourself 
And if you think it can't happen to you, think again. It can happen to anybody. So therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years. Can you imagine? To be in a daily ministry for three years, night and day for three years. You know, I think about our schedule, and yeah, we got five, five sessions a week. What's that? How about 14 sessions a week? Can we do that? One each day, one each night, seven days a week. Well, that's the pattern of the Levitical offerings. Evening and morning sacrifices, seven days a week. The fire never goes out on the altar. In any event. So be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years that did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Seems like Paul was quite a crybaby. <laughs> don't you think? Well, it hurts. When you're teaching the Word of God and people don't care, when you're preaching the Word of God and they're like, yeah, okay, Paul, I get it. Yeah, watch out for ourselves. They're not listening. And so I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. And so, yeah, look, look to yourself. Look to yourself. And then you can look to the flock. If you're not looking to yourself, you're not qualified to look to the flock. Keeping ourselves undefiled so that we can minister on behalf of others. And that's what we've had on the previous slide. If, if you're not cleansed, then you're a vessel for dishonor. If you're not cleansed, God won't use you. He can't use you. Not going to use anybody that's out of fellowship. We're not going to use anybody that's. That's why we don't take money from unbelievers. If you're born again and you want to give as unto the Lord, you want to give in fellowship, you want to give for the glory of Jesus Christ. Great, we will be happy to accept it, freely given, freely received, and grace wins. The win-win. But if you're not saved, if you're if you're or if you're carnal and you're giving for wrong motivations, grudgingly or under compulsion or some kind of a guilt thing, forget it. God doesn't want it. We don't want it. God doesn't need it. It's got to be done the right way for the right reasons. And that's what it's about. If you're out of fellowship, God can't, God won't use you. That's the, that's the aspect. But when you're cleansed, again, useful for the service, useful to the master for every good work, that becomes important as well. All right. So because he is obligated to offer sacrifice for sins as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives the honor when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. No one takes the honor to himself. The father pronounced him a priest, said, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. It was granted from the father to fulfill this function. Same thing with us, by the way. We're believer priests in Christ and we don't claim it for ourselves. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't claim the honor. We don't shake our fist and demand things as if we deserve them. If We are believer priests, but we're believer priests in Christ. And that's bestowed upon us at the moment of our salvation and not one of us deserves it. You know? You know, you know how terrifying it was to go into the Holy of Holies? If he did so in the wrong manner, he'd be struck dead, right? And I don't know how true the legends are. Glenn maybe could tell us. Or I don't know how true are those legends about, well, they would tie a rope around his ankle. They would wear these little bells. And I, I've heard all these legends and all these things. I, you know, Show me a verse. But in any event, there was the expectation of death. 
Nadab and Abihu burned strange fire, and God blasted them. So the four sons of Aaron became the two sons of Aaron, and you have two priestly divisions instead of four priestly divisions for the rest of the Old Testament. And um, and so think about it. And, and we are going to enter into the Holy of Holies. We're going to enter into the presence of God in an unworthy manner. Wait a minute. Or we're going to be we're going to be defiant, or we're going to be. Um, I think we've got a. And the Book of Hebrews is going to teach us how to offer God a, a, an appropriate service a service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Sometimes I tremble because I think we often lose our fear, the fear of the Lord. You're going to get a newsletter this month, a June, June newsletter is a bit of a rebuke. So I hope you receive it in the spirit that it's given. Saying, uh, are we getting sloppy in our fear of the Lord? Are we getting sloppy in our diligence? Are we... Uh, are we disrespectful to God when we assemble? Are we distracting to our brothers and sisters in the pew? Anyway, so when you read it, read it prayerfully. All right. We're going to render him a service in, in reverence and awe. No one takes the honor to himself but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. And so we receive. Everything God gives us, we receive. We receive it. We're thankful. We're undeserving. We're thankful that we receive it. And so um, this kind of gets us into these realms we'll introduce next week. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. He exalts the humble forever. Remember, humility precedes exaltation. Humility will always precede exaltation. If God doesn't promote you, you're not promoted. That's, that's an important principle, right? And these are the things. And, I, and, I, and we got to train this way. We got, we got Lewis, we got Bill, we got Cornelius, we got other men, and they're going to be pastors someday. They're already pastors by gift, but they're going to be in a, in a lampstand at some point, standing in a pulpit, feeding a flock. Well, when will they be ready for that? Well, in the meantime, there's humility lessons. There's humility lessons, okay? And that happens too. So we're going to get into verse 4. I'm going to close. We're going to get into verse 4. And um, don't want to save this for next. No, let's, let's look at it. Because you know the verses anyway. God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. It comes out of Proverbs 3.34. It gets quoted in James. It gets quoted in 1 Peter. And we're told to humble ourselves. He gives grace to the humble. He also exalts the humble. Remember, Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of humility. He went to the cross. He humbled Himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God also highly exalted Him. The reason why He's exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father in power and great glory is because of that pinnacle of humility when he went to the cross and became sin on our behalf. And so we'll look at these verses. We'll look at how he gives grace to the humble and exalts the humble forever. We'll talk about how humility precedes exaltation. And this comes to the core of Satan's lies. Satan likes to promise the crown without the cross. Blessings without suffering. 
great thing, you know, rainbows and unicorns and skittles and sunshine and no suffering. You shouldn't have to suffer. You shouldn't have to. You shouldn't have to. You, you deserve not. All these things. Satan wants to just offer all the kingdoms of the world, all their glory, just bow down and worship me. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't need the humility testing before exaltation. I'll exalt you now. And that's the insidiousness of, of Satan's lies. The wisdom from below. Anyway, we'll, we'll pick up on this next week. And then verses 5 and following, So Christ did not glorify Himself as to become a high priest, but He who said to Him, You are My Son, today I have begotten You, says in another passage, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus wasn't shaking His fist with a long list of I will, I will, I will. Satan's the one with the five I wills. Jesus didn't exalt Himself. The Father said, You will. You are. That's a big difference. Father, I thank You for this day. I thank You for Your truth. I thank You for the blessing we have to study to show ourselves approved. I thank You for our priesthood in Christ. And I pray, Father, that we will have an understanding of all of these principles. That we would uh, constantly be operating in a, in a mindfulness of grace, in a mindfulness of reverence, in a mindfulness of the, the fear of the Lord. What a, what a privilege it is to enter within the veil. The, uh, in the Old Testament, it was one man one day a year all by himself. But in the New Testament for us today, it's all of us, all day, every day. We're all together in Christ. And we are praying and we are loving and we are sacrificing and we are gifting and we are praising you. And all that we do, Father, within the veil, all that we do, Father, we want to do in a, on, a, on the terms that we're studying here in grace, in thankfulness, in humility, Father, uh, recognizing that we don't earn this, we don't deserve this, but you've called us to this service. And so, Father, by the grace of God, we are what we are. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we are going